Given the competitive focus on maintaining market share, we didn't see as clearly as I would have hoped the excesses, so we didn't raise a hand and ask whether some of those trends and practices that became commonplace really served the financial system's interests. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Wednesday, January 13th. That was Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein, you heard at the top, testifying before the Who's to Blame Commission, also known as the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, set up by Congress. Our own Alex Bloomberg is down there today following that. So expect to hear more on that. The big news story today, of course, is the devastating earthquake in Haiti. Uh, we were looking at these photos of the presidential palace there, which looks like it just collapsed. And we assume that's probably one of the better constructed buildings. There are just horrible reports of people trapped and crushed under buildings and no ability, no insight to get them out. As of this recording, we have absolutely no idea what the death toll is, but it looks like this will be a, a major, major tragedy. Haiti, of course, is a very poor country. And our indicator today is $760 million. That is the amount of aid money countries around the world pledged to provide to Haiti. And we're not talking about today after the earthquake. That was the amount pledged before all this happened. We've been working with the United Nations office on Haiti for a few months now on a story we've wanted to do on Haiti. This is the office supporting President Bill Clinton's efforts as special envoy to Haiti. And he has been very disappointed in the follow through of, of richer countries to help in what he says has been over the last few months, a real effort and a, and a real credible effort to turn Haiti around, to bring proper governance, proper health, and to restore the private sector so Haiti can have self-sustaining growth. I called over to that office today and they said they just... It's, it's far too soon to have any idea what has happened to those efforts at this point. They're just doing damage assessment and damage control. But they told me that uh, President Clinton is reaching out to major private sector companies, to governments, et cetera, and, um, and not just him, of course. Many others are, are launching major, major appeals to help the troubled country. And, you know, over the next year, we are planning to spend a, a lot of time looking at this big question of why poor countries are poor and why they tend to stay poor. And it, it turns out in order to understand that, it actually helps to look at countries that are not poor and see why they work so well, sort of uh, why rich countries are rich. And I was in Denmark, you know, for the UN climate talks. And when I was there, I got totally obsessed with the, with the economy because it's, you know, it's the opposite of Haiti. I mean, on, on paper, you, you can consider it. I've, I've been trying to figure out how to slug this story. The awesomest economy in the world, one of the more awesomer economies. I mean, here are some numbers. Uh, the GDP per capita is very strong. Also, it's among the highest in the world. Unemployment at one point got so low, it was less than 2%. Which I've, I was taught is theoretically impossible. Theoretically yeah. impossible, right? They have the second or third lowest income disparity in the world. That's the gap between rich and poor, one of the lowest poverty rates. Uh, on that corruption index, it was almost the least corrupt country in the world. They also have the highest income tax in the world, though, so maybe that's not so awesome. But by some surveys, they have the happiest people in the world. So, and, of course, they have the best furniture in the world. The very best furniture in the world. So I, I had a lot of questions like, how does this economy work? Does it really work that well? You know, and can other countries copy it? So 
Right after I got off the plane when I went there, I met up with an economist, Ove Peterson, who's at the Copenhagen Business School. And we went for a walk through Copenhagen, and it was raining. And uh, I think you can hear the rain on the umbrella in the, in the recording here. Um, and it was pitch dark. It gets pitch dark by 4 p.m. there because it's so far north. But there were a lot of people out on their bikes. The Danes like to bike everywhere. And the city was lit up, and it just felt festive. And one of the first things Peterson pointed out as we were walking around were the government buildings. Because if you think the U.S. has big government, you ain't seen nothing. All the buildings in downtown Copenhagen and the Royal Castle, the Parliament Building, the ministries are oversized to a state like Denmark. <laughs> oh, the buildings were, are too big. You've... Yeah, they were built for an empire. And now they exist in, a, in one of the smallest states in the world. So they're rather huge compared to what you see, for example, in Stockholm, what you see in Germany, what you see elsewhere. That's so interesting. Are they empty or did no, you... the welfare state took them over, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but they're, rather, they're rather beautiful and they, um, they, um, they symbolize an empire. I love the idea of an empire turned into a welfare state, all this <laughs> external effort focused inward. And that welfare state, of course, fueled by those huge taxes, means that the government provides education for everyone, health care for everyone. Yeah, basically, the government will take care of you. And one really interesting thing about the Danish economy is that it has this mix. It's like a huge welfare state, but it also has very free market uh, policies when it comes to trade and other things. And for instance... And this is what we're going to talk about today. They make it very easy to fire people. So, you know, companies don't have to pay tons of severance. Like if the economy takes a dip or things aren't working out, they can just let you go pretty easily. There's a saying that I hear economists use, which if it's hard to fire people, then it's hard to hire people. In other words, if everyone you hire, like in France or, or in some sectors of Germany, when you hire a person and you know, if I ever fire this person, I'm going to have to spend a lot of money on severance payments and it's going to take a very long time to fire that person. I'm just not going to hire as many people. It's like if you had to marry everyone you dated or something like that. And they talk about labor market rigidities, meaning it's hard to hire and fire, versus labor market flexibility. And the reason economists think economies perform much better when you can fire people easily is because that means there's just a lot more turnover. So an industry that's doing well is just going to grow and grow and grow. There's very low cost to hiring new people. You can sort of say, all right, I'll hire 20 people, and if we fail, I'll get rid of them. And, and the economy can just very quickly adjust moving people around. And, and so they would say that that's very good in the long run for workers. Right. Of course, if you're a worker in the short run, you know, that might not be so fun, right? Because you could lose your job. And that is why Denmark has combined with, with that easy-to-fire policy uh, very, very, very generous unemployment benefits. So in the United States, if you lose your job, you can get six months of unemployment usually, although that's been extended now temporarily to 17 months because of the recession. But it is nothing compared to Denmark. Guess how long Denmark gets? In, if you're in Denmark, you get four years of unemployment. You can collect unemployment checks for four years. So the Danes call this whole policy flex security. Flexible meaning it's easy to fire people. Security meaning there are huge unemployment benefits. And Ove Peterson said one result of this is you have huge turnover. People go in and out of jobs all the time. The labor market is about 2.2 million people. And about 300,000 of these 2.2 loses their job every year. But more than 300,000 new jobs are created every year. That shows the adaptability of this, this kind of an economy. Does that mean there are people who uh, have like a different job every few years? A normal Danish uh, uh, worker 
both in the public and the private sector, changes or her jobs every fourth year. Wow. And you normally change your job function six to eight times in a lifespan. So if I just stop someone on the street, they'll probably have been fired at some point, maybe multiple times, right, and found new jobs? Right. That's just the way of life. It is the way of life, and that's, that's the reason why we do have this welfare state, because if it is a way of life, it's also a welfare state is also a way to handle that challenge. Have you ever been fired and had to go on welfare? Uh, no, not personally. Your wife? Uh, yes, twice. She's an architect in the public sector, and she's been fired twice because of restructuring of the public sector. And that's another part of, of this flexibility, to have a welfare state that can... That can uh, ameliorate or enhance the mobility on the labor market in general. You also have to go through reforming the welfare state constantly. And the Danish welfare state it has been constantly re- re- reformulated and retransformed at least as the last 25 years. So it's not a, to be a public servant is not a guarantee to, uh, against uh, unemployment. You are just like private uh, uh, people working in the private sector, uh, challenged by unemployment uh, constantly. So, so the, the the waiter standing over there through the glass, he's probably had multiple, multiple jobs, right? Yeah, and he will change his job within the next three or four months or so. So does that mean it's, it, does it feel different to be fired? I feel like it's incredibly traumatic in the United States when you lose your job. Um, you know, just because they're hard economic times, it's, it's, it's amazingly traumatic. Is it, is it that way here? No, first of all, there are no, no social stigmatization uh, connected to being unemployed or being fired uh, because everybody used to, 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 to uh, go through that kind of a social situation. So you, you know what people say in America? They say, I'm between jobs. That would, that's what yeah. they say. They don't say I'm unemployed. They say I'm between jobs. <laughs> Here you say you're looking for a job. Yeah. <laughs> and employers like it because when they need to get rid of workers, they can get rid of workers. And it's not a big deal. Exactly. And that's why in the, in the present situation with the economic crisis, the unemployment rate in Denmark goes, very, uh, goes up very fast compared, for example, to Germany. That very slowly moves up there because German companies try to keep their workers at the, uh, in the companies, even if they don't, uh, even if they don't don't work, but in Denmark, because of the flexible, and the flexibility of the labor market, every company tried to get rid of their uh, labor force not as fast as possible, but even faster than, for example, in in Germany, and probably also faster in some of the other economies around us, because they know that they can get the uh, they, they can get the work. They can get the worker back when they need them, and the worker won't lose personal income, and the worker, even in the period of unemployment, will be retrained. So the worker coming back is more competent than the worker going out. I would think if I were an employer and I had some great employees, but economic times were tough, I still might not want to get rid of them because I worried I might lose them. I might not be able to hire them back. Maybe they'll find some other job. Yeah, but that's because in the United States you take for granted that the uh, the um, the competence is in the hands or in the mind of one person. But here we take it for granted that everybody has a high level of competences and everybody, that is, are able to move into nearly every kind of job. The problem with having huge unemployment 
benefits, at least the story that, that a lot of economists tell, is that it can really be a drag on the overall economy. It's not just that it costs money. Obviously, it does cost money to give unemployment benefits. But, but even worse, people who are unemployed, if it's not so painful to be unemployed, if it's actually quite pleasant, you might spend a lot of time unemployed. And if you have these large sectors of the economy not working, that means lots of people not being productive. And now economists, by the way, will never use the word lazy. I've certainly never heard them say that. It just It's a perfectly you know, reasonable, rational decision. If, if I can make good money not having to work for 40 hours a week, why would I then work for 40 hours a week. It's yeah, I mean, what, what if you were getting more in unemployment benefits than you might as a salary, right? And you could stay home with the kids and you could fix the door that always made noise that bothered you or whatever. It's a perfectly rational decision, right? And I wouldn't have to make more. I could, you know, if I made a bit less, but I got <laughs> right. all that free time, right. I'd, I'd take that deal. Right. And actually, when Denmark started this program, there was that problem. And I, t- I talked to a lot of people about this, in- including this one student, and I, I'm going to let her introduce herself. It's... A very difficult name. Um, it's pronounced in Danish as Sine. Yeah. What's your last name? Bull. Bull? Olesen. Okay, give me the whole thing. Sine Bull Olesen. Okay. Do you ever look, I mean, do you ever, is there ever any uh, animosity? Do people ever look and say, that person's not really honestly looking for a job. They're just sort of staying at home and collecting unemployment benefits. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I mean, this is another big problem. We, I mean, there are always people exploiting the system. We have, I mean, many people. Do you know? Do you have stories? I think, I think almost everyone knows someone who has been on welfare and at the same time working, you know, unofficially working. What do you say? Like in Denmark, you say you work black, but on the black market or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like working on the side, getting paid in I mean, cash. Oh my God, that's so. Yeah, I would like to say no, but I do think it is. So, you know, over Peterson was talking about how they had to constantly tweak the welfare system. Uh, one of the things they did with this this problem is they put in all these kinds of controls to make sure that people were really trying to find a job. When you become unemployed, you... Um <laughs> what do you say? You don't say you turn yourself in, but you have to tell the authorities that you've become unemployed. And then you can get, if you have, we have a kind of insurance system, so you get, you get compensation, economic compensation. But in return, you have to send out, I believe at one point it was 10 applications per week. And you had to prove that you had sent these applications, which resulted in the fact that, I mean, you cannot, if I were to apply for 10 jobs a week. I cannot find 10 jobs a week that I would be qualified to do. So we had social workers applying for doctor jobs, like scientists or, I mean, the craziest things, you know. Jobs they were totally not qualified for because they had to apply for something. Jobs they were completely unqualified to do um, just because they had to prove in order to get this economic conversation that they had applied for 10 jobs. So what I keep finding fascinating about Denmark, and I feel like the the big lesson that that we're trying to squeeze out of Denmark is there are things here that seem impossible. This system to me, if you said, oh, I'm going to tell you about a country, they have four years of unemployment benefit, (laughs) but you have to spend all your time in these incredibly inefficient pursuit of jobs that you don't even want and and aren't serious about trying to get. I was thinking, you know, we're in the process of hiring a blogger, for example, and we um, hired our supervising editor and we had to go through resumes. I was just thinking, oh, my goodness, if I also had to go through resumes of all these doctors and (laughs) bartenders and whoever else is just... Um, and and so all of this seems so ineffective. 
efficient and and it just doesn't make any sense that this is in one of the most successful economies in the world. But what you're making me realize a little bit, maybe, I'm just throwing this out there, is that part of the super flexibility, the ease of hiring and firing, is knowing that those people are secure. I've once or twice in my whole life been in a position to at least discuss firing someone. And we were paralyzed with upset because we knew how hard their life would be and how miserable it would be. And we, and I think every company has lots and lots of people around who probably shouldn't be there, but the company keeps them around because they don't want the personal pain of being responsible for someone else's misery. So I wonder if maybe this system does allow a, a more flexibility than, than one would think on first blush. Yeah, I and mean, you could imagine you get, there are some economic gains, right? If you can uh, you know, let people go more easily, if it's... Uh less expensive to let people go because you have to pay less, you know, uh, compensation for them and all that. But there are definite downsides to this. And I, I talked to Uwe Peterson about that, the uh, economist at Copenhagen Business School. What is the downside to flex security? I mean, what do you, where do you think it shows up here? Um, that some people will take the opportunity to stay unemployed because they're paid to stay unemployed. So they're not forced into, in, into, uh, as fast as they should into into a labor situation, into a job situation. So that means a slightly slower growing economy. Yeah, there's a kind of slack in the system. And the slack always have to be controlled, so to speak. And if you want to control these these things, you have to build a bureaucracy. And when you build a bureaucracy, it's very costly. So there is a mechanism for welfare state always growing and welfare state always becoming bigger and bigger. And the threat, of course, or the challenge, of course, is that the, the, the welfare state could become so big that the economy could collapse because it's so big. Do you worry about that? Absolutely. This is something I, I talked to an economist the other day about Denmark and was talking about some of the stuff you told me from your trip there. And I said, it sounds like in a lot of ways they've got us beat. Maybe we should learn some lessons. And this economist said, well... You always have to wonder when people say, oh, that economy is doing so much better. Is it sustainable? Right. And when you look at the economies that uh, that at various times in the last century, people have said, oh, that economy is better than the U.S. The Soviet Union for a while, they beat us in the space race. There was a time where it seemed like they'd take over the world. Japan seemed unstoppable. And, you know, over time you learn they don't have the most sustainable economy. I'm not saying that means there's no lessons to learn here. But 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 I think what Ove Peterson is, is telling us is there there are hints, at least, that maybe, maybe this system can't last forever. I mean, that's one thing I kept thinking about. Like, the system works because you have a well-functioning economy right now, right? So you have a small number of people unemployed, and it's easy to cover their unemployment benefits. Suppose you had a real crisis, and that grew, and you had 50% of the country unemployed. Then you're going to have to have the other half paying even higher taxes to somehow support the other half. And, you know, it sort of works in an economy where you have a few percent unemployed or something. But if that grows... You know, then you start increasing the national debt. It could it could be a real problem. Peterson said there's also this other peril to having a big welfare state, which is that it it just kind of changes your psychology. I do uh, I do teaching. I'm I'm normally lecturing and doing research in the United States, and there's a huge difference between the students in the United States and different and and Denmark. The Danish students are much more laid back. They're intelligent. They're intelligent. They're smart but they are less hardworking than the Americans. Because why? 
because they know for a fact that they will be paid in the end and there will be jobs for them in the end and so on and so on. So the uh, individual incentive to t make the next step to, to really be uh, pushing forward is not here. You know, it does occur to me, David, especially on a day like this. I mean, we're I'm, I'm already expecting all the emails saying you're beating up on Denmark's welfare state or whatever. <laughs> and, and, and I do think my, I tend to think for, for an economy like the U.S. or like Denmark, you, you can't get everything for free. You can't get really generous social services, um, really generous health care and an endlessly growing economy and very low unemployment you know, the, some of these things are costly and, and the costs will come in the form of, of reduced growth or reduced stability or, or there, there will be a, a cost to pay. But like on a day like today with, with, with the crisis in Haiti, I, I think of that as almost like a niggling little nuance between if we're going to be like sort of having a debate between the U.S. economy and the Danish economy. It's like, OK, we're both really rich. Not everyone, but lots and lots of people in both economies are doing very, very well. I think that in a country like Haiti and like, frankly, most of the countries on earth, there's a huge amount of growth that could come without having to pay all the costs we're talking about. I just thought it was worth mentioning. Yeah. I mean, but, but again, for, you know, for countries like Haiti, like they have to decide which way to go. And for China, you know, do they want to build themselves more like Denmark or do they want to build themselves more like the United States? All right. We are, we're going to have more on the Danish economy for the next podcast. We mentioned they have the highest income tax in the world. Adam, guess how much you pay on tax if you want to buy a car? I buy a car. Um, actually, I don't know. It's two hundred percent. Two hundred percent. I was going to say seventy percent, but thought that's too high. So I kept thinking, should I say fifty percent? No, and it's not like um, they, they are required to include it on the price you see on the car. So it's not like you go up to the you know to, to buy it and then they add on. Okay, that's, we're so if I that, yeah. a twenty thousand dollar car here, which might be a lower end car, I'd have to pay sixty thousand dollars yeah. in Denmark for yeah. That's for next time, though. <laughs> Check out the blog, npr.org slash money. We're going to have some video and reaction to the first day of the Who is to Blame for the Financial Crisis hearings. So that's why they bike everywhere. <laughs> it's not because they're just like outdoors people. It's because they have 200% tax on cars. Of course they're going to bike everywhere. And it's flat. All right. Let us know what you think. Our email is planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. In spite of these comforts